0: Hello, my name is Tom Throffel.
1: And I'm Ben Ashby.
0: We are the hosts of Future Proofing Finance Podcast. We dig deep into the latest innovations in technology that are disrupting finance in the digital age. Yeah, sometimes we talk about crypto.
1: We've got a great guest, Simon Galbraith. Hi, uh, hi guys. Thank you for coming on the show. Could you just tell us a bit about your background and, and you know where you came from and what you're up to at the moment for our listeners?
2: So the reason we're talking is that I'm a reasonably successful entrepreneur. I founded a company called Redgate Software, which is about a 500-person database tools company based in Cambridge. Probably these days, it's international. It's all over the world. And then on, on top of that, I've actually been a, well, I a remarkable to me, at least successful investor and in a bunch of other companies where I've also taken a significant stake. And I've basically been deeply involved in growing them. So there's another bunch of other companies which are worth yeah, telephone numbers that I've also had a hand in creating. So I guess I'm I'm both an entrepreneur, but also sort of entrepreneur slash investor where I try and apply my entrepreneurial skill to things where I'm not directly running something, but I'm heavily influencing it. My background is I've got a PhD in physics from Cambridge. I guess I sort of started off life as some sort of scientist, did a little bit of time in Thorny MI and various other places like that, and then worked in the oil industry. And then ultimately a friend and I were setting up a company and decided to sort of forgo the gigantic salary that Shell were paying me and decided to take a, probably it was probably a six or seven X pay cut in order to go and work for my own company. as it turned out financially, at least, was a very good decision.
1: Can you talk us through that sort of journey from being an employee to an entrepreneur? Was it that you saw the opportunity in the market or you suddenly came across a technology you just had enough of working for the man, as they say.
2: I think I'm someone who always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So uh, I'd set up my first business when I was probably 11 or 12, delivering newspapers uh, when, on a Sunday when no one else was delivering them. Always trying little schemes and things out as a kid, trying to find different angles to make, obviously, just small money, but trying to make, to make money. And I love the autonomy and independence. So for me, doing my own business was, as it's turned out financially, it's been, you know, I've been extremely successful, but it wasn't really about the money. It was about the autonomy.
1: Excellent. With that in mind, you know, what are your biggest lessons? Uh, Well, actually, what were the first challenges you discovered when you kind of went down the entrepreneurial route? How hard was it for you to find money to kind of do the business plan? What sort of resources did you find that you needed and just weren't available?
2: So. In my case, I was growing a business that didn't require much capital, at least at the time, because I was creating a software business. One of the features of today's entrepreneurial landscape is how how tiny amounts of capital are required in order to create a great business. Now, to rapidly grow that business, if you've hit on something good, that might require a fair bit of capital. But to actually get the initial idea off the ground to be able to demonstrate what it is to be able to get your first customers. You can do that with more or less sweat equity. In my case, my friend and I, the two, two co-founders and a couple of other friends, we put in £40,000. We actually paid the other guys back. In fact, we paid everybody back within two years, paying a 30% coupon on that uh, thing. So it wasn't particularly a, a question of capital as such. Now, not every business is a software business, but at least for us, The capital was basically almost a confidence trick of like, okay, well, we can give up our jobs and just have a go at this thing. It wasn't particularly anything other than that because the main the main work we were doing was intellectual property. It was like you know, creating software, creating a brand, you know, tiny bit of advertising just to get the pump primed, and then off we went. But I think that's probably more typical. You think an awful lot of these ideas can be significantly demonstrated with a very small, obviously talented team to get some to get something. Which sort of proves out the idea can be done in incredibly low cost because, because the lack of need for capital. And in fact, if anything, that's got easier because we had to do things like buy servers, whereas actually these days you can just rent those by the minute or the day. So if I look at the original costs we incurred at Redgate, one of which was we had to sign the smallest office lease we could find was five years. And we had to do things like buy capital equipment, like servers and so on. Both of the major costs of capital that we, the little capital we need, the major costs we had were actually, we're actually got, are actually gone now. Now you can rent office space by the week and you can get, uh, you can rent service by the day. So those things are far less capital intensive. So when I've been doing other businesses, I've, I've much more focused on whether they've built something that people find useful. So is there, is there some germ in this idea we've got? Can we actually do something which has actually got active use and the sort of active use? but people might pay us money. So it's, it's much more about that than it is about you know, how much money we need. In fact, nearly all of my investing, in some sense, is a, com- is a confidence trick. I don't mean in, in a really negative sense of confidence trick, but hey, look, I'm going to put some money into your company uh, because I think you've got a good idea. Together, we'll work out what we're going to do. But and I'll tell you this people up front, I honestly think we're never going to spend this money. And in general, we haven't.
0: So when you think about the staging to MVP, so, if you uh, like, it, it, what whatever your uh, minimum variance is, uh, whatever your minimum viable product is, you're saying that you know the startup for that for that in that environment, software is pretty low, and it's what the next stages from there. You get a confidence vote, and then from there, it's about understanding external capital. Or where where, where do you see the interesting part of capital in terms of the allocation part?
2: I was just talking to one of the backers of SpaceX the other day, and he said the same. I was amazed by how similar it was. It was a. He said, look, really good companies don't really need external capital. You know, they can generally, they'll generally find a way without it. You know, so so SpaceX obviously has had investors, but actually they generate a lot of their capital by getting contracts from NASA, various other things like this. If you look at even things like Airbnb, yes, they took on some money because they wanted to scale, but the actual core of of Airbnb, long, far beyond MVP, was self-funded. They just got out there. They they made a little bit of money selling some uh, branded uh, Cheerios at a conference, got themselves $20,000, $30,000, Twenty thirty thousand dollars 30000 and they used that money to build a business that was already scaling. It was just a case of the money was actually used to accelerate the growth in their case, because obviously they had an absolutely vast global market to run at, and they, they were worried other people were going to catch them up. So in in general, capital is not the constraint for getting a, a high-tech business off, off the ground, certainly one which doesn't involve biology.
0: It creates a second-order effect, of- then perhaps, in tech, where Talent is so best and the price of that talent becomes harder to build the core teams. Or do you think core teams can be so so small that that's not that relevant?
2: I mean, for the average for your average business, there's a certain point where you've got to start scaling, it. and then at that point, you've got to be able to afford to pay for the wages of the people that you've got. I mean, this might not be typical, but in my case, I've done this probably five or six times now. It turns out that you can generally sell this thing more rapidly than you thought you could. So, generally, my advice is like, let's start selling it now, and let's start pricing it—not crazy high, but enough to make this material start bringing money in and then there's a certain point when the whole flywheel starts turning and then that's the point where we start adding to the team so we might start with a team of like three or four people they're essentially living on sweat equity we go as hard as we can at it and there's a certain point when you're sort of going downhill rather than going uphill and that's the point where you start bringing in external people but at least at first it's very appealing to go and work in a very small company which has got great prospects so you don't have to You're not competing with. If you're competing on salary with Google, you're doing completely the wrong thing. Anyway, you're trying to appeal to people who want to be part of building something good. Maybe accept the fact that they're they're probably going to get some equity, which is going to be worth more than it would be if they were at Google as well. But the the compensation part of it isn't really where the conversation goes. The conversation is much more around: Do you want to help us build this thing? Obviously, as finance people, you're probably thinking: Surely they need more motivation than that. Surely they're doing a trade-off between a Google job and a whatever job. And that might be happening in some abstract sense in the market. But in the actual conversations you have, that's not what. That's not the conversation you have. The conversation you have is, we want to build this. What do you reckon to that? Have you got the skills for this? Do you think you could do this? What do you, what do you think about this problem? And they're like, oh, God, that sounds really cool. And so, yeah, let's, let's do it.
1: You raised a good point about finance people. So when you're looking to back somebody, something, uh, one of the sort of adages is always back the jockey, not necessarily the horse. What do you do? You think that's true, and what do you look for? And also, when you talk about the idea, so I'm the classic MBA background, and I'm aware of the sins that we've committed across the world over the years through spreadsheets. But is that kind of something that you would hold as a negative, or you really want sort of science people who have got deep industry background or they've been successful entrepreneurs prior?
2: You don't need me to tell you it's the jockey not the horse. I mean, the the idea itself often morphs quite a few times before it's actually reached, reached, the, reached the point at which it's going to scale. It's far better to bet. I mean, obviously, you want some idea that's beginning to look like it works with ideally a small team of people who you think can grow. Quite often, one of my tricks is understanding that those people can grow much more than they realize themselves. So understanding where people's capability for growth. Very few entrepreneurs are running a three-person company, look or sound or even behave like someone who's going to be running the 30-person company in three or four years' time once it's all beginning to work and running the... One of my guys is now running a two or 300-person company. I mean. If you'd met him when he was running a small team, he wouldn't have thought he was capable of But actually, he's actually probably the best CEO I know. So people you know, people do grow. Uh, I guess that probably answers it. Does that answer the question? Was that, There was another bit. To, the MBA part of it is I, I, would, I would positively discriminate against people having an MBA early in the life of a company because you, you get taught the opposite of what it is you need to know in order to create a great company. So an MBA, I hope I'm not insulting anyone here, an MBA is a good solid grounding in the standard business practices running a, a large business. So, you know, how to disc what a discount capital rate, how to understand an investment, how to compare different investments between the two, you know, a sort of A good playbook in just about any situation. You've got to do headcount reduction. Here's how to do it. You've got to understand all those sort of the language and methodology of thinking about a larger business. In a in a startup, it's much more a series of iterations and questions you're trying to answer. If we were to fix our website like this, could we get more people to try it out? Uh, What do we? But you're, you're trying to go through incredibly rapid iterations of things you don't understand or know very well. So you've got to be much more explorative and less certain of yourself uh, in terms of how you innovate. And in general, MBAs have been taught a lot of knowledge, that, which is far more certain than it really is. So an MBA is sort of like a curse. Whenever I've worked with people MBAs, they sort of almost have their, this is what I was taught at Cambridge, so that must be the right thing, but they don't really know why. I'm sorry if this is a bit harsh on MBAs, but the, that, that attitude is quite unhelpful when it comes to the very rapid... Iterative learning that you need to do in order to create a great business. Now, if you've got once you've got a great business and you want someone to run your sales function, do a good, solid job. An MBA is great. Bring them in.
1: I'm afraid to say I agree with everything you say there, as a, as a graduate in the, an MBA myself. What what do you look for when you back these people? And I know you say you don't necessarily need the money. And also, what would the advice be to CFA members when they're looking to allocate capital or potentially support? people
2: i think i've got so the first observation is that when things are big they're bigger than we all imagine they're going to be so something that's sort of working well now has often got far more legs than you might initially expect and it can you can end up sort of thinking too small just as like well you know i know that's worked but it's only this little toy i built it's only like a little thing surely surely we need a proper thing now but actually that toy might turn out to be a far bigger and more successful thing than than anyone realized so i'd certainly i've massively underinvested in the things that like when I was being serious, it didn't seem like it could be big you know it didn't sort of seem big and important, but somehow it it turned out it was solving bigger more important things so in terms of investing capital, something that's growing and doing well well managed and well led uh, is that the prospects of that company might be significantly bigger than a comparative company that's growing more slowly that's got that's already maybe maxed out its particular little niche and you know, I can, I can remember when Google floated, it seemed like they were really, really expensive. But, you know, I was a customer of Google in the early days. I was I was this tiny company giving them a million dollars a year for their AdWords. Well, hey, if I'm, if, if,
1: you
2: know, to this day, Red, Red Redgate, which is making, uh, very roughly, it'll make about $100 million next year. A million dollar customer is a really huge deal. Yeah, we were like a 30-person company giving these guys a million dollars a year. So looking back, it was pretty obvious that Google had a long way to go from their float uh, price. There, 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 there's an awful lot more for them to do. So, I think asking yourself the question whether this company has got more to do is is it can it it not go bigger and better than it? I was often a really sort of an obvious question, but it's if you're not careful, you're looking at the PE ratio and you're looking at this and that, and all these things are all sensible things. But fundamentally, a company that can be 100 times bigger is going to be worth a lot more than a company that's going to be twice as big, even if it's got beautiful metrics.
1: I understand from your side, that's a great observation. What do you think? is really missing from the financial community across the whole spectrum so we've discussed obviously we're pretty much towards the wholesale end of it the sort of professional money managers but just from your experience as an entrepreneur about basic banking services things of that nature when you expanded internationally do you think the banking services are really there for you
2: i mean you sort of said it at the start when you were talking about the cfa is regulated and people in it have been trained up highly uh and that's a benefit but that's also That's also something that the industry is doing in order to protect its reputation and to be careful with costs and so on. As a a customer, the regulation gets massively in the way of actually just getting on and doing things. Now, if you, for example, want to open a bank account in the United States, that that might take you several months. There might be all sorts of things. I still, every few years, have to go back to my lawyers and prove who I am, even though they're the people who wrote my will. The... There's this endless, a lot, of the, a lot of the regulation, I sort of wonder who it protects and whether the, whether the sand that you're pouring into the wheels of your overall, you know, the finance industry, it seems to be very content to have an awful lot of sand poured into its gears. And I would ask you, I hope that sand is worth it because it makes you incredibly slow and incredibly unresponsive. And there's lots of opportunities that if you were just quick, if you were quicker, you could just make a better return for the, for the customers. So there's, and you'd be operating a better service.
0: Can I use that as a time to dovetail a little bit into uh, in, into your uh, previous business uh, Redgate? Um and maybe you can talk to us in slightly layman terms? I mean, I run a tech company, but like generally the audience is going to be um, a little bit less techy. Uh, and And explain what DevOps is. I mean, I think as an environment, it's a pretty interesting way to solve like live solve a problem and iterate on a problem. That I think, you know, for example, I've asked my team who are far more technically able what. Why don't we use this in marketing? Like, yeah. You know, why don't we use this somewhere else? Like, we we can be testing and you know applying more and more money, which is exactly what we do. So, I was wondering if you could maybe describe a little bit
2: um, what uh, DevOps is. Um, and so, then DevOps they- is a Devo- yeah, sure. DevOps is a catch-all term that describes uh, an engineering practice where you try and bring development and operations together. So. In the past, if you like, you write software, then you produce it, then you might give it to operations, and they they then administer the software. So in the past, operations and development would be quite separate from each other. What DevOps is tried to do is to bring those two things together. So as the, the team that's responsible for making the software is has some responsibility, and is much more close to whether the software has actually added any value, worked, how it's actually performing in its environment that's out there. So that sounds like sort of a general wishy washy saying, why has it become so big? And the reason it's become so big is that it enables you to do something which is quite profound, which harks back to something I said earlier, which is it lets you dip the software far, far more frequently. So the big change that a good DevOps company is doing is rather than shipping the software, for example, when Redgate started, we'd ship the software once every, say, three months. Well, in the very early days, it was quicker, but a couple of years in, we're shipping our software every three months, or so maybe maybe at a pinch, a month, and that was considered to be blisteringly fast because it would take a long time to make sure the software was stable enough for our customers to use. So we'd have to, we'd write it, we'd then test it, and then we'd give it to customers. But that very, very long loop between making the software and it being in customers' hands causes a lot of damage because you're basically, it's not of context switching. People forgot why they did it. People don't do things because the customer might whatever. Whereas if you can get a, a good DevOps environment, for example, one of my companies well, Redgate's like this. Redgate shifts to software maybe four or five times a day. So if something is going wrong, we will be on top of it, and it'll probably be fixed by the next morning. But it'll be fixed by someone who caused the problem in the first place, understood what they did wrong, went through the whole thing. And then the second thing about DevOps is you generally generally you make a lot more automated testing. So rather than uh, rather than a bunch of human beings making sure the software works, you write uh, automated testing. So the software itself is actually complemented by a testing suite, which is often bigger and more complex than the software itself. So for example, Redgate. Redgate works against different types of databases, different schemas. If you imagine a schema is the structure of a database, a bit like the drawers in a filing cabinet and what's in the what's in each drawer. Uh, but not the content would be different. Depending on different, that might change. If you imagine that Redgate's probably got some, some millions of different structures of databases, and when we test our software, we test against all three million different database schemas, and we do that before it hits a customer. Now, it would be very, very hard to do that as an individual, to go through and make sure you should different database work. But by doing it automatically, we can make our software far more robust and reliable than if we were just using it using human testing. So this, this very rapid iteration loop means it's far easier to write software that's useful. Well, one of the things about running a software company is that you sort of painfully learn over time that nearly all the code that's written is wasted. Most of those guys typing away are writing stuff that will never be used by a customer. And only a tiny fraction of them are doing work that's actually really valuable to the customer. So the more you can make it so that we've just done this thing, our customers using it? Are they doing the thing with it we've hoped they were going to do? Even more important, which one of the things I've really tried to do over the years, is I want my engineers to understand the customer really, really well. So I want them to actually be able to describe to me as well as the customer what the customer is really trying to achieve, what are they really trying to do. So when we write a software to solve those customers' problems, we've actually the person who wrote it, understood at a very deep level what the customer's problem was. And DevOps makes those challenges far, far easier. So DevOps is, on the surface, it sort of sounds like just a catchword, but it basically boils down to much more rapid development, much more rapid uh, testing, and a far higher degree of automation, which is why you've probably heard of companies like GitHub or which Microsoft bought. All those things are only really relevant because of DevOps. A lot of these things didn't really matter when you were shipping your software once a year, but when you're trying to ship it every single day, You've got to have these really powerful, advanced tools in order to make that work. I, like I, don't, know if it's,
0: I don't know if it, that's that, that. was an awesome explanation, and I think you, you did it on multiple levels, which I loved. I mean, I was going to ask a follow on question: is why hasn't that dual firewheel, the testing environment, live environment—been used in other applications? I don't know if you want to answer that, but I was going to, You can choose to go down that way, or if you want to go down the AI, which is the other.
2: Yeah, that's up to I got to talk about both. Yeah, the, so. DevOps is coming. Well, that, that that methodology is coming and has arrived to a greater or lesser extent in lots of different industries. So, for example, the the legal industry, the way I don't know if you ever done, I've done lots and lots of legal work and deals and so on. When you're, when you're buying companies and things, it, there's a lot of legal work. I mean, the the legal profession is still sort of using a word document with track changes, but they've they've not really. They should have a. It's it's basically a piece of code it should have a source control system you should be managing who changes what when you should understand the impact of changes the these things are there's lots of things like that where a, a more DevOpsy approach would be hugely powerful in having more rapid contracts delivered with uh, whatever and the same things i mean we use this in marketing in fact if you come to redgate a lot of the a lot of the way of trying to empower people is that you push the work make the work visible, and then try and have the way that people work. So you basically go through this iterative loop we've been talking about. So if you go to Redgate's finance department, there's a post-it, there's a wall full of post-its with the the improvement projects they're going to be doing. And they're basically using a DevOps process to try and improve it. So in just about any area of professional work, there's there's a DevOps, or maybe DevOps, we used to call it agile rather than DevOps, but for a better word of it, a, a far better way to approach that work than just the way you've always been doing it, and it's and it's significantly about empowering people on the team to be able to do their own improvements and innovation on it, and it's in, and it's and it's significantly about being able to m- see what's going on and make sure you're pushing these changes out much more rapidly than sort of like oh in a year's time it'll all be right, but in the meantime we'll do the big change projects. No, 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 we're going to improve something tomorrow, and we're going to run a little project to make it work tomorrow. That, that type of thinking. You asked about AI. It's early to say, but
0: well, I was going to – I was just going to – I'll ask a better question on AI because I was going to say, do you like the way that AI can help automation of the the checking? But uh, can I – I'll ask a different, slightly different AI uh, question because I was reading one of the Regulate blogs and someone was talking about breaking chat GBT because a lot of people don't understand how the log works. You know, they don't understand this is probabilistic stuff. And obviously, CFA people, we're pretty comfortable with all the things like probabilistic, uh um, but maybe not probabilistic logic. You know, these these things become fuzzy all of a sudden, even if you've lived all your life in statistical numbers. Um But I was wanting to ask, opening easy one, do you use, are you interested in AI, or what applications do you know? And then we can go to get into something more specific, if you like.
2: Yeah, I think AI... I mean it's 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 obviously amazingly powerful, and we're all going to be touched by it in the next few years. So, I mean, as an investment thesis, you know applying AI to that standard business that's been done the, the same way for the last ten years as as a if you just imagine just about any business at all, if they were to use AI in some of its more obvious ways, the chances are they can cut out a bunch of costs and deliver a better service. I mean, I wouldn't be the first person who does this before I joined this blog. It's like, okay, imagine you're talking to CFAs, what sort of things would they be interested in in Chat GPT? Oh, they'll be interested in your entrepreneurial journey, your financial strategy, your business success. Like, oh, okay, that's, that's like you know, it just saved me. It saved rather than me having to spend half an hour thinking about it. I spent five minutes thinking about it. I read that thing. Okay, that's a good. That's a good guess. And then when we're talking, I'll I'll have done. I'll have done. My preparation will be at the right level to be able to have an interesting conversation with you. And I think that type of thing. There's just so many. There's so many ways it can. It, it's not going to replace human beings. Well, it might have certain niche areas, but it's more that it just takes some of the grunt work out of having to do the thinking and you just condenses it down rapidly. And, it's, and I think that's going to mean lots of things are lower cost, higher quality. Did you ask a specific thing about embedding it in DevOps and things? The one
0: I'm interested, most interested in is what is the washing machine moment inside AI? In your opinion, is it uh, driverless cars or you know, do you think there's something you know, less obvious? What have you seen in that space?
2: I guess I see AI as a significant enhancer rather than a replacement technology. I mean, I get that in a perfect environment, you can have a driverless car. I think it might be 20, 30 years before they're routinely driving around the streets. So it, it might well get there. But having an AI sitting in your car, making you drive more safely, understand the risks better, helping you, we're already using it to plan the route, all these different things. So rather than seeing it, it's like, oh, there won't be any taxi drivers in the future, that might happen in certain lovely environments. But most likely it'll be that the the AI will be used to improve all sorts of aspects of that experience and i think i i see even chat GPT, which obviously on surface is amazing but i still think it's not going to be fully replacing human beings it's just going to be making us work faster and smarter than we were before
1: i have to admit that very much chimes not only with my experience but my view that i think it just allows you to do more with less it makes you much more productive going forward now, Simon, you sit inside one of the greatest tech clusters in the world. You get to see all these ideas floating past. So where do you see the world kind of being five, ten years out? Where do you really see the sort of big technological breakthroughs? I know we've just talked about AI, but obviously a lot of people talk about uh, biotech. But I know that's not really your specialist area, but you obviously move in these circles. So where do you see society shifting?
2: Well, firstly, when you sit on the Cambridge Angels like I do, and you, they, they get about a 1,000 applicants a year of people trying to apply some bit of technology or whatever, and uh, they, they end up funding about 15. So there's a lot of stuff out there, uh, and only so much of it could, uh, could, could even get money, let alone uh, let alone see success. There's a hell of a lot. Honestly, the curse of Cambridge is there's a hell of a lot of sort of technology searching for a problem. If I could change anything about Cambridge, it would get people more interested in customer problems, less interested in some abstruse bit of science that they convinced will be useful, but they've never had the guts to actually speak to a real-life human being to find out would it actually help their life at all. So, if, 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 I'd, I'd love it if we could change that about Cambridge. Uh, I mean, it's a huge question you just asked, really. But what I see is in I think in biotech, and then the in the in the combination of applying computers and some amazing new advances in technology and understanding there's going to be enormous advances in ways in which we can keep humans healthy uh, and prevent both prevent and enhance disease. And and there's literally endless technology. I mean, if you take the long view, 50 to hundred year view, I think cancer is going to become rare. All forms of aging are going to be significantly delayed. Uh, Rare diseases are going to be crushed. People are going to lead uh, largely healthy lives for most of their life until they choose to let it sort of fade because, the technologies are all coming, and there's just tons of sort of stuff. So, I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. Obviously, with uh, AI, computers, all sorts of jobs that are tedious and boring are going to be enhanced, as we've just been discussing. There's there's tons of amazing things there. I mean, even even things like material science and things. Material science. If you just think about the advances over the last 30 I don't. I see no sign of that slowing. There's all sorts of amazing technologies and materials coming through, which are going to really changed what it means to be a human being in all sorts of in all sorts of ways it's it's we are at a time of well i mean it's probably this has probably been true any time the last 200 years but right now this is probably true next year as well right now the pace of technological change across just about any axis is so blisteringly fast and that the life that we're leading now will seem strange and weird just like a life without mobile phones seems to our children so there'll be similarly big and important changes happening in the fields of AI and medicine and many others so that in 20, 30 years' time, we'd look back at this conversation and say, oh, my God, they didn't even have that thing that everybody has now because it's so incredibly useful and cool. So there's, a, there's an enormous amount of good stuff happening. And obviously, some of those good things will have negative side effects as, as with all, all technology advancements. But, yeah, there's, there's a huge amount to come.
0: My kids and I, uh, I've got three quite young kids. We play a game where they pretend they're my age and they say back in my day and then they finish the yeah. sentence off. It's quite, it's quite <laughs> hilarious, but uh, yeah, no, 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 I, haven't, I haven't found any technological gems that I can pass on in this conversation, but uh, very, yeah, yeah. very interesting. Um, uh, ben, do you want a question? I was going to ask a, a slightly product management question, which might seem a bit out of sync because we kind of got in and out of Redgate. Um, but I, I, I've been reading up a lot about product management, um, management. And in, in particular, I'm quite interested about the death cycle, you know, that disruptor becomes the disrupted uh, cycle. Um, and I just wonder, you know, you've been at the helm of red for 20 years. That's many, many death cycles. Uh, how do you stay ahead of how do you, that question that you do, Are you looking to disrupt your own product or how do you reinvent yourself? Or do you have to, or is it just,
2: yeah. The short, the short answer is I was partly lucky because I'm in a field, databases, which have been a very persistent technology that are just as important, if not more important now than they were a generation ago. And that was very fortunate. So I think we got off likely in some, compared to other, other tech companies. So what I'm about to say might not be as true in certain other sectors. The thing I would say is that what's kept us alive is being close to the customer and really understanding their problems. So technology exists to solve problems for people, or certainly the way when they're giving you money. So when you really understand the customer's problems I and mean, you understand how well you're doing solving it, it makes adopting the innovations and other things far easier. Whereas if you're sort of blindly saying, oh, AI is really cool, surely that's going to crush you. It's like, well, you know, here's all the problems we solve. Here's where AI might be able to help. Here's what we can do now by... You know fast following when we had to invent AI, but we'll be able to apply it to some of our technologies. So it really boils down to really, really understanding your customers' problems and really understanding your individual, not individual customers like you know every single one of them, but understanding the problems they've got and whether that technology will be able to help, the new technology that's coming through can help them or whatever. So it really does matter to deeply, deeply, deeply understand the problems that your customers have. And if you're understanding those, I think you can cope with a fair bit of, for a better word, of a disruptive innovation against you, but obviously there's sometimes when, when the change is so profound and so big, then uh, then maybe you won't be able to respond in time. And I didn't. I I try to build long-lasting companies with great culture, great products. You know, with a view to I want this company to be great in five, ten years time, not just to sort of flash in the pan. I've, I mean, I've I've only ever built such companies, but. No company lives forever. No, and I don't think that's something to be sad about. I, I feel like if Redgate was to be disrupted next year, and the technology would be to destroy it, I mean, obviously it'd be a pity for me, and my wealth would be diminished. But I would still feel proud of what I've done, I and mean, we still had a you know twenty odd year history of saving enormous amounts of time and bother for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people. I'm very proud of that, and that's 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 in itself good. I earned a lot of money in the meantime, and if it had failed, it wouldn't be the end of the world. So. I don't really mean really it. It's not going to go. I really hope it's going to be fine. But I don't think it's, it's not my job to worry about it. My job is to worry about, I've got a bunch of people I try to help. Can I help them? If it turns out that there's some other way or some other thing that happens that mean I'm no longer relevant to the world, you know, suck it up. Go and innovate somewhere else. It'll be fine.
1: I know many senior bankers at firms I've worked at that have very much the opposite view to you on that kind of thing. And that's... Uh, but then they get the benefit to answer your earlier question of they quite like regulation, because it slows down innovation and it makes it very, very hard for new entrants to uh, enter the market. So they they have, uh, but people on the ground, they they don't have a lot of interest in regulation per se. I need to be careful because we're on the CFA call because it slows our business down and the ability to do it. But when you get to the strategic level, it has some value, is perhaps the politest way to say.
2: I think that's true. But I also think that London in particular has been a tremendous source of innovative products in the financial sector over the last five, 10 years. And I think that uh, I think that maybe because it's finance and it's such sticky customers and so on, maybe it will take, maybe it is taking time. But I I think that the, innovator, the innovators that are solving problems now in London are going to be far bigger companies. And some of those companies that are now bestride the financial sector are going to be quite a bit smaller just because, because they don't solve their customers' problems very well. And I, I, th- I think that there's, there's a lot of innovation to come in finance and I'm really one of the things I'm very proud of is uh, as a British citizen a lot of that stuff is being born in London and I think that's a really wonderful thing for us.
1: I, I totally agree and I know exactly what you mean about a range of companies that exist for their own purposes rather than actually sorting out issues for their clients and I, I know we've discussed this in the past so I just wanted to say your PA is the most efficient person I have ever dealt with and lottie told us that we should ask you about your recent trip because apparently it's it's quite special i can see you smiling for people that uh will only hear this on podcast so is this one for public discussion or, or do you want to bring- yeah that's
2: right was a really interesting thing just as a, as a meta observation if you're saying uh one of the what what is a good sign that someone can run something is do they have great support if you're wondering whether to invest in this company And you get in touch with them and they've got someone working with them who is really empowered and it can really help them be more productive. That's actually a pretty powerful sign that they've got other skills and qualities which are relevant to running a successful business. It might sound like a bit of a weird one. Oh, they've got a great PA. It's actually, in my experience... You know, if you're talking to people who are great and the company's really going somewhere, they've got great support. And if you've got someone who's floundering, so like, I wonder whether they're going to make it. So it an interesting one to stick at the bottom of your uh, selection criteria list for a stock. The reason I wanted to mention the other thing is that uh, I, I've just I've, I've been involved in this charity in Sierra Leone. And what we do is we turn up in a community and we basically create a bank. We it's That bank is a sort of steel box and we have, uh, they actually generally use football branded notebooks as a ledger Every woman has her own little personal ledger. And then there's a general bank ledger where it all goes in there. And we, uh, we basically teach them how to put money in, understand how much money's in there, how much of their money's in it, make all that side of it really work. And then they then put that capital to work in little trading businesses, which we also teach them a little bit about how to be an entrepreneur. And you see these women go from like, literally, poverty-stricken, one of the poorest countries in the world, one hundredth of the wealth per person than there is in the UK, possibly less if you actually count it, sensibly. Uh And you see these women go from having literally nothing to just slowly building little trading businesses. And then a few years in, they're running, well, we met this woman who's running a 2,000-chair rental business uh, in a town called Kenema. She rents it out to local religious services, other people running bars and restaurants and running farms and so on. Uh, and the reason uh, I thought it was relevant to talk about it to you was it, it's, it's like a sort of blank sheet of paper you go along and you see a society which has got none of the things that we uh, we take for granted and then you see how do they create prosperity and the way that they create prosperity is by giving people the means to understand and control money and i think that's an important thing to sort of bear in mind in your in your world because Part of what it is, you're sort of doing God's work, you know. You're allocating capital on the behalf of other people, but you're also part of the system that creates prosperity. I mean, prosperity is created when people, individuals, actually take control of their control of their money and uh, you know, they actually put it to use rather than having it taken from them or or it's just out of control. And I think that's it. Was just a just when I was talking to finance professionals, I think you, you, you can forget all that stuff. Like oh, I'm just trying to pick that stock up at right this, but actually underneath it all, you're a bunch of ladies in Sierra Leone. Deciding whether to put your money into some shampoo or to put your money into some uh, other product to see if you can get some of them—it's you know, like it's a fundamentally valuable human thing, and when we get good at it, it creates a lot of prosperity. So I guess that's why I wanted to mention it. It's, it's, it's a really amazing thing to see.
0: I think that's fantastic. Like the the, the effect, the effect that the effect that that, um, that 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 mentality change, and then obviously learnings can give. I mean, you've seen the studies on how, you know, teaching women passes on, you know, you know these these lessons much more effectively. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Is there anything that you think is applicable? I mean, I'm thinking blockchain as soon as you started talking about this, by the way. So I was listening, but I tried not to... To, to go down the blockchain uh, uh, the, uh, route on this next line here. Is there anything that we can learn from that? Like, I, I mean, sometimes when you strip things back, and you learn what the most important pillars are. You, I mean, you've already expressed one, which is that being able to empower people through prosperity, like build their own. But are there other things? Like, is it, you know, does regulation create other issues that you, you
2: see through that? I don't This might be going too off topic. The, the thing that, one of the things, that, so I also met up with these, uh, what they call microfinance companies. Uh, they have they have micro MFAs, I think they call them. They're basically companies that this guy, Yunus, and in India did it all first. And the idea is they go along and lend, lend very small amounts of money at high rates of interest to poor people. And the idea is that they're so capital starved, they can make a good, good use of that capital and they can create wealth for it. So I met up with three different MFAs when I was out there. And I asked them all the same question. I asked each of them three times, so I never got a good answer. And the, answer the question was, can you take me to one person, one person in this area, we can get in the car now and go and see them, who is definitely more prosperous and richer because they took a loan from you? Uh, and I asked that question in lots of different ways and I, n- n- none of them could ever get me anyone. So in other words, there's this whole industry out there where all they do is the opposite of what we were talking about earlier, which is they only ever impoverish. The, the people. Do it. The reason for that is that if you if you can do, do the math, they charge you 7% interest a month, but 7% a month equates to about 140% a year because compound, compounding does its magic. And it's very, very hard. If, if you can make 140% return on capital in a year, you deserve to, be, uh, <laughs> deserve to be working in the city of London as one of the best financial advisors rather than uh, sitting as a fairly poor person in Sierra Leone. So one of the things that it really struck me was that the the banking really creates wealth, and the the loaning or the the send loaning money to these people it's very hard to find anyone who was made richer, which i think i don 't know how much tr- i 't know how much that really applies in the uk but I, I, certainly my personal view on credit cards is that the vast majority of people are effectively accelerating their purchases by basically renting money off the bank at a very, very high rate of interest, and that we we sort of have all this regulation to protects me from being an oligarch, but we don't seem to have much which protects normal people from doing something insanely stupid, which is to spend you know ten twenty percent of their wealth basically paying interest on a credit card every year and you think well is this is this just a price we pay for banks that they get to do this loaning thing I don't know but anyway that, that was that was that was the that was the learning when you talk about blockchain there's there's a whole raft of technologies that are getting sufficiently cheap uh that are going to mean that we're going to be able to transform under the noses of kleptocratic governments in Africa the prospects of their citizens. And uh, M-Pesa have done a really good job with mobile payments, but that is just the beginning. And I think that I think that aid in general is going to uh, is hopefully going to wither because I think it does a lot more harm than good. And what's going to replace it are businesses that really unlock the potential of tens, if not hundreds of millions of people to really create wealth for themselves. And I'm not sure whether blockchain is going to be the most important of them, but I think the ability to be able to transparently and easily save and use money without the crushing hand of these evil governments will be enormously, and it will unlock a tremendous wave of prosperity and entrepreneurialism in uh, in developing countries. So I think it, I think it's a really exciting time for
1: that. Ooh, thank you, Simon. So just to wrap up, uh, what are you up to next? And essentially, what would you be your parting words to the uh, CFA community? You want to, what do you really want to pass back to thousands of us?
2: Yeah, what I try and do is very different from the average CFA. I'm just not sure it's applicable. So what I try to do is to identify, I'm trying to identify no more than 10 companies where I'm going to take a decent sized stake and I'm going to get deeply involved in making them uh Really successful, and I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna get a 10x return out of every single one of them. I'm not gonna be like a normal venture capitalist. I think I'm gonna do that across the board. You can bring me back on the program in a couple of years' time and see how wrong I was. By the way, I'll be interested to know. Uh, so I try to concentrate my resources down about what I think I can be truly great at, and I try and put my money where my mouth is and really care about making it work. Whether that's relevant to the average person investing, I don't know, because obviously portfolio theory says you should spread it out. But if you spread it out, you're just going to do average. So then maybe you should maybe you should concentrate. So I guess there's uh, there's that side of it. Sorry, there was a second part to your question, wasn't there?
1: What you're up to next, but have you already answered the ten x? And if you are successful, I'd like to co-invest. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, like I say, I'm not particularly capital constrained. It's more about it's more about getting the right people to work grouply towards the right goal. So that's more what i try and do i think it's just a do you know what there is one thing there's a lot of gloom out there in the in the in the press about the the high levels of taxation and uh the dire state of british infrastructure and all sorts of other things, cost of living crisis. But out here in the business world, I'm seeing a lot of optimism. I'm seeing all sorts of companies that are doing incredibly well, who are thriving, who are attacking global markets, who've got a long, long way to go from what they're doing. And I I think that although you can't deny economic reality, I also think that there's a this is a time of tremendous opportunity. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of absolutely amazing businesses in Britain that are going to be far bigger than... They were last year, even in a few years' time. And I think there's there's going to be a lot of good stuff happening. It doesn't mean that we haven't got to cope with the fact that the government's taking too much of the money off us and there's lots of unproductive stuff happening, but there is a lot of good things. Certainly in the business world, I, I see a lot of quality, a lot of really good stuff.
1: Yeah, I I agree for all the doom and gloom, Uh, even at my level, I see lots and lots of really potentially transformational companies coming through, and they're going to do fantastically. But one of the key issues is rebalancing the economy, so we can perhaps tilt ourselves more towards these opportunities and what they bring rather than perhaps getting tied up with some of the historic stuff. So, Simon, I think we've come to the end. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, We'd love to have you on again, particularly in three years' time, maybe when you've done your TEDx (laughs) on everything. In fact, when you bought the CFA uh, in three years' time, so you can change everything at the records. So that's all for me. Thank you very much, Tom. Unless you've got any final words,
0: closing comments. I thank you very much. Really enjoyed uh, uh, chatting and learning from you. And uh, I've spoken to other um, uh, other um, people on um, many people on asset allocation that are uh, very distinctly from the the um, modern uh, modern theories. And yeah, yours has come up a few times, which is you know, go for the 10 Xs and, you know, do it the way that you know best. So uh, best of luck to you. And I look forward to likewise uh, hearing from uh, you about them, the success of them in
2: three years. Brilliant. Thanks very much, guys.
1: Brilliant. Cheers, Simon. Thank you.